And so it's a lot easier for us to become resonant with the frequencies around us because the brain is trying to do that. You are listening to And If Love Remains, a unique show spotlighting people, ideas, science, culture, and art. Your host, Mike Lovett. Mike Lovett. You are listening to And If Love Remains, and you're right, Rachel. This is Mike Levitt, your host. So happy to be here with you today. And uh, you're listening to that great podcast, In the Sky. Um, I am very excited to have with me Stephanie Stephanie Peterson, excuse me. And uh, we're going to talk some, I think, really interesting concepts here as far as economics, music, science. Um, some really interesting things that that Stephanie kind of brings in her in her book, The Next Octave, that that we're going to be discussing. But first, Stephanie, she writes um, fantasy, sci-fi, poetry, and nonfiction on economic themes um, in an entertaining, humorous, mystical, and sometimes snarky way. Um, and uh, she's not an economist herself, but she's been praised by people like Art Carden and Jordan Goodman. Um, her latest book. Um, I believe is it is the is the next octave your your latest book, Stephanie? No, actually, um, I had one come out just a month ago Whoa. called Inflationary Fairies. Congratulations, that's awesome. Thanks. We'll have to talk about that one too sometime. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, the 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 fact that that economics has become such kind of like a great way of of telling stories and 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 bringing in different ideas, I think is exciting. And I'm glad you're doing it. I think it's important. I love, um, you know, the, the idea that I'm sure you're well, well aware of, of, of human action on Emic uh, economics is nothing more than people doing stuff, you know, right. hopefully to benefit others. Right. And, um, so I want to talk a little bit about your background, where you're coming from, who you are, and, and then we'll get into your book, the next octave. So, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself, Stephanie. Well, I, I first started writing books when my kids were young. I was homeschooling them, not every year, but most years I homeschooled them kind of off and on. And what I really wanted to teach them was economics. There wasn't really a curriculum for that. So I made one called Cost Benefit Junior. And it really came out of an experience that my oldest son had at school one day. And he came home and he was curious why something had happened on the playground. And I realized he has no sense of the incentives that motivate behavior in other people. And it all boiled down to economic incentives, even though there's no money uh, taking, you know, being exchanged on a, right. on a school playground, but all of the same incentives were there. So I wrote this, this book, which ended up being more like a textbook, and had him go through it and my other son too. And then um, it just kind of, that was a, about it for my book writing until 20 years later, I um, started having ideas of other ways to pull economics into stories. And 
I just, and you know, the, the kids were gone by then. So I had to do something to keep <laughs> myself busy. And this is what ended up happening. My first um, really story after cost benefit junior 20 years earlier is this one called having it all. And this is just a, a, a thin little short little sci-fi novella um, about inflation on another planet. And then inflationary fairies is about inflation in medieval Ireland. Um, and so those are two fiction books, but the next octave, which is this one here is the thickest by far. And it is nonfiction. And it is where I just delve into a lot of weird connections that I saw between music theory and monetary theory. Very good. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a fascinating read. Where If people want to pick it up, what's the best way? How do you want people to find your book, find you um, before we get into it? What's the best way for people to locate and buy your book? It's only for sale uh, right now on Amazon because that's where I self-published it. Um, I do have a, a website, stephaniepetersonallease.net, but I don't sell books off of there. I may do that in the future. It's more of a, of a very infrequent blog <laughs> that I sure. occasionally remember to write in. <laughs> well, that's good. That's a good way to you know get people to stay in touch once in a while and make sure that people are alive. And, All right. Um, <laughs> that's a good thing. Um, okay. It, as a musician, it's kind of funny to me um, how many people bring up the the correlation between math and music. And, and there are a lot of um, ways to describe music in mathematic terms, um, but you kind of take it a step for, further in describing it in economic terms. Tell me about the genesis of that idea. Like what what made you think, okay, the, these connections are are – maybe more real than, than imaginary. Like where, where did you come up with the idea and what inspired you to write the book? Well, I didn't come up with the idea. Plato did. And oh, okay. I, <laughs> so I can't take credit, but um, in, in being very curious about economics and I'm very pro capitalism. And when I tell people that they think that I'm like some sort of banker or robber baron cheerleader, which could not be further from the truth. But nobody understands what capitalism is, is. And so when I was trying to find the nascence of this loss of the proper definition of it, it took me all the way back to Plato and all of the debasement of the currency that was happening in ancient Greece. And what I discovered, and I wasn't expecting this at all, but I discovered that Plato was comparing city-states and their social and their economic and their political success. Okay. And as he was, I mean, I knew that, but, and another author actually tipped me off to this too. So again, not, not my idea, uh, but another author, Ernest McLean, showed that in comparing these city-states, he was, Plato was doing so musically. So he was tuning each of these city-states with a certain tuning method. And back then there were several. There was Pythagorean tuning and there was just intonation. And <clears throat> Plato, although I am not a fan of Plato and I 
I like to tell people that right away because just because I'm referring to him doesn't mean I agree with him. But he was a smart man. <laughs> and uh, he anticipated the kind of tuning that we have today, which is equal temperament. They didn't have it in his time. And apparently they weren't quite ready to be able to figure out how to do it. Or if they did figure it out, they didn't tell anybody. But he anticipated it and he tuned one of his city states, well, Atlantis, according to, or I'm sorry, it wasn't Atlantis. Atlantis was just intonation. Um, it was magnesia was tuned um, according to equal temperament. And so he found that, and magnesia is just a fictional place, I believe, but he found that the city-states, in his opinion, that were the most highly regulated were the best. And the city-states who had the type of tuning that is more natural that you would find in the harmonic series or in just intonation allowed people way too much freedom. And he was very down on that. And in fact, he blamed freedom and liberty in, and Ernest McLean says musically, for the fall of Atlantis. And the fact that there are rings with water around Atlantis and in the description, um, that was to represent the untempered octaves. And, you know, Plato was all about temperament as right. far as the human psyche. Well, this is also temperament. You temper music and you do it for a couple of reasons that are practical, but you do not do it for a beautiful sounding interval. And so Plato wanting to temper every human being and really herd people so that they weren't too free and they wouldn't cause a lot of trouble. He wanted to do the same thing in music and he appreciated music that was tempered and he did not appreciate music that was untempered. Right. Okay. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting um, as you talk about these different tuning systems, um, because it sounds to me like um, it's, it's um, not, not so much something that, that's, uh, you know, kind of understanding this, let me say it this way, understanding this information or, or being aware of this information can help you, but it's not, it's not like you're going to get rich by knowing it. In other words, it's, it's, it's a way of describing an economic system. It's a way of like saying, okay, um, we can use, you know, we can use English or we can use music, you know, we can use Greek and, and each one of these communication devices allows us to understand more fully the concept of, um, you know, human interaction, um, you know, how, how we deal with one another, um, and how economically I, it all describes why, um, certain societies or certain individuals even succeed or don't. Is that, am I, is that a good way of saying what, what you're trying to say? Or? Yes. Yes. And there's so much to say about it. It's hard to boil it right. down even into one conversation. Yeah. But I think that, a lot of what Plato was doing was propaganda to convince the masses that what they were doing with the money was right when it wasn't. And only the elites of the time really knew that it wasn't and understood that because it's hard to understand um, some of the more complicated economic theories. And they, they did. 
I'm convinced that they did. Uh, they were debasing the currency just the same way we do today. So they already had that understanding, but they didn't want anybody else to know that they were doing that. And so they had various ways of telling this, you know, Plato's noble lie. And, uh, but if you look at economics and music, and I don't know how much of this Plato knew because Plato was really just my, my starting point. Uh, from mm -hmm. there, it kind of grew. The right. research led me off into some different rabbit holes. But there are a lot of economic realities in the structure of harmonic music that, of course, are not in the structure of equally tempered music. We don't tune our music in the way that that would be best economically. Um, I can't say that we should just dump equal temperament and adopt harmonic tuning and we'd all be better off because our society and culture has now evolved around tempered music as far mm -hmm. as our music culture. And when it was first implemented around 1580, there really wasn't much need for it. It was implemented by Galileo's father, Vincenzo Galilei, and he was a member of the Florentine Camerata, and they were very much influenced by the Medici family in Florence and by Rome and the Vatican. And, and so this is going to sound like I'm going into a, a Vatican conspiracy theory here, and, and I am, but it's not probably the same conspiracy theory that that you may have heard before, because they developed equal temperament, which was a, a big deal. It was not an easy thing to develop. And math, I'm not a math person. So, you know, I'm, I will give credit where it's due and say, yeah, it was a, an incredible innovation to come up with equal temperament because what it allowed in music and what the Camerata in Florence wanted was to be able to um, transpose and change keys. And the way music had, had been, um, especially in, in untempered music, like that you might find in Indonesia or Asia, um, that you couldn't just change keys on the fly. You had to stop and retune your instrument every time you wanted to be in a different key. Right. And so that was an innovation, but what the Camerata then did was start this brand new musical expression called opera in order to, and this is so economic, they were stimulating demand for their new product because there wasn't much demand for it. But now if you have an opera that you're going to sit through for three hours and each song in the opera is going to be in a different key, or maybe not each one, but there will be several key changes. Um, now you have to use equal temperament. So we're stuck with it now. We've we've grown up with it. We've written all of our music according to that tuning system. Right. So there's no way out of it. And and, and let's just I want to back up just a little bit because um, I understand exactly what you're talking about, but I think there may be some in the audience that don't. Um, when you're talking about equal temperament or ju just temperament, like the, the purpose and the reason for temperament for um, tempering music is if you look at music is a physical thing, like, like anything else, it's vibrations in, in the universe, in the sky. And 
when they hit our ears and and so correct me if any of this isn't speaking right but when they hit our ears you know they it's either um it sounds good <clears throat> um you know or it or it sounds it sounds bad and that that what what a lot of scientists believe that is is because of the ratios between um how how the two notes are colliding against each other um it's either dissonant or or um or or constant mm-hmm. and uh um and so the problem is um what pythagoras kind of discovered is that these he kind of discovered what these ratios were and how to use them but the problem is is you know, what you explain what's the problem what's the problem with, with pythagoras perfect tuning well he is um it, primarily pythagorean tuning is known as stacking fifths mm-hmm. so he is stacking the same interval on top of itself over and over and over and if you do that 12 times, you will end up with all of the 12 notes of the chromatic scale. But you will, and they'll all sound beautiful because they've all got this perfect interval going on over and over again. They've all been tuned that way. And so they're all just, and they're all going to, you know, please your ear. And they might even give you a little bit of a shiver. If I hear perfectly tuned music, sometimes it'll give me shivers in my spine or my legs or something like that. If anybody wants to hear it, listen to a barbershop quartet, a really fine barbershop quartet, because they're tuning themselves to each other and not to Mm -hmm. a, um, you know, not, not to an instrument. And so they can actually get, when you hear that ring, that's, that's that, those, those, um, that's, that's exactly what, what that Pythagorean kind of tuning does. Yeah. But the problem that it causes is what they call the Pythagorean comma. So even though you've got all of these beautiful intervals all the way through the scale, when you get to the octave, it's not perfectly doubled because you cannot put 12 fifths into the same span of frequency as seven octaves. They conflict. And the reason for that is because the octave is based on the power of two and the fifth is based on the power of three, and ne'er, ne'er shall the twain meet. <laughs> right. Um, so temperament, f- first and foremost, is done in order to squish everything down so that the octaves fit and are, are perfectly doubled. So that was the first kind of goal of tempering. And they had temperaments back in Plato's day, even though they didn't have equal temperament, they had mean tone temperaments. And... Um, they all accomplished that goal in different ways and 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 they were all successful maybe in one area but maybe not so much in another and they all varied and so yeah you you'll hear sometimes in music you'll hear especially people in the 19th century 17th century they'll talk about the wolf tone or they'll yeah. talk about things like that where where it is it's literally like you are purposely putting a certain uh, key so much out of tune that if you put these two notes together, it sounds horrible. Um, and that, but that's a purpose, but that's purposefully done to give you maximum flexibility within that tuning system. And so what I found as I was, I don't know, I don't even know how I got here to be honest. It, it was such a meandering little trail, but eventually I realized that the harmonic series has it also tempers music even though it's untempered (laughs) and natural but it has its own form of temperament in order to um 
produce a just octave. And it produces a just octave along with a just fifth and everything fits perfectly. And my God, how did that happen? You know, how did, and it's math, but it's the simplest math ever. So me as an English major and a poet, not normally known for their math skills. I'm sorry if I'm offending anyone, but that's true for me. Um, I, I could understand it. So if I could understand it, it's got to be pretty simple math. And so the harmonic series is really just the number series. It's just okay. one, two, three, four, five. It goes on to infinity. But as it is structuring the harmonic series, you see a lot of economic reality in there. And I guess if I were going to boil everything down into one little idea, and there's many more than one ideas here. Right, right. But if I were going to boil it down to one, I would say that what Vincenzo Galilei did in 1580 was he he essentially took the harmonic series and turned it on its head. So there's such a thing in economic theory called marginalism. And marginal theory suggests that all decisions and all human action takes place at the margin. So you might love coffee, for example, but why don't you go into a coffee shop and buy them out? Well, because you go in and you have one, generally by then you're satiated. And after that one, you don't want an additional one. And that would be your marginal purchase. The next one the next additional unit of purchase, of savings, of interest rate, right. of whatever so it you is. Would, you, you'd, you'd be more wise or, or, or a rational person would use that money in, with something different as opposed to another cup of coffee. Right. right. Because you've got your marginal utility has been satisfied. And if you attempt to keep going with it, you're going to experience diminishing marginal utility. And so this is all economic stuff. Well, the harmonic series has marginalism built into it as well. And it is, going back to what you said about musical ratios, now let's see if I can get this straight in my head because every so often I, I flip things. <laughs> but the it's the ratios of harmonic tuning and the scales that are produced that are marginally decreasing. Okay. And what that does is produce a static or fixed distance or interval between the notes. So uh, this is where it gets kind of mathy. So bear with me because I may not explain this very well. It, that's why I write books because then I can edit it and make sure it's all right. right. Talking about it sometimes. By the way, so go read her book. Buy her book, read it. <laughs> You'll understand. But, if you were to take uh, a perfect fifth off of the frequency of uh, 16 hertz, it would take you up to 24 hertz, which is the perfect fifth off C, which is G, and that's a span of 8 hertz. Okay. If you take that same ratio off of G now at 24 hertz, it's not going to take you up to C, again, the octave, because it's a larger frequency that same ratio is going to give you a different number of hertz that you go up. 
I can't really remember off the top of my head what it is, but I'm guessing it's somewhere around six. And so, or I'm sorry, no, it gets bigger, not smaller. Anyway, it's in my book. And so marginally, looking at the harmonic series from marginal theory, you have decreasing marginal um, ratios. So for example, three to two is your fifth, um, and then you might go four to three. Well, that's a smaller number. If you divide one by the other, it's going from like 1.5, which is the perfect fifth, three divided by two. And then the next ratio that you are going to use is going to be smaller when you divide it than 1.5. And so you've got these diminishing values of ratios, but within one octave of the harmonic series, it will produce a fixed number, a fixed interval between each note. Okay. So like in the case of middle C, I think um, the, the, the span of interval in between each note is 16 Hertz. And I could be wrong on that too. Again, these are numbers. Right. But it's a set amount. It's a set number. <laughs> exactly. So what Vincenzo Galilei did was he flipped that. He took one ratio, just like Pythagoras did, and used it over and over and over. It's a fixed ratio to produce increasing marginal intervals. Does that make sense? It does. It and does. So so as, as you'll see in equal temperament, each interval between the notes gets incrementally larger. So that's the difference is that the, the instead of diminishing marginal uh, ratios, you've got increasing marginal intervals, which I know it's very confusing and I'm sorry. It, it wasn't my idea at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, but what's interesting about that, it, one of the things, there's a lot that's interesting about that, but one thing that's interesting to me, again, as, as a musician, as I, is, um, as I hear this is um, you can practically understand this as a composer, as a musician, because the higher you go up the scale, the higher you get up, um, the less uh, dissonant things sound to the human ear. Um, mm -hmm. For example, you can play like a low C on a piano and then you can play a high B, um, you know, maybe three octaves up. And that will sound far less dissonance than if you played low C and the B right next to it. And, and, um, and I think there's something to do with the ratios and I think there's something to do with how humans perceive those ratios and how we interpret them that, that makes those things. And, and so you can have something that sounds up high, uh, a minor second over and over and over, you know, that might sound like birds chirping, you know, where if you go down and do the exact same thing in the lower octaves, it sounds like a monster is about ready to kill you. It sounds like jaws or something. And yeah. so, you know, and so what's interesting is, is that composers can use how we hear and how those ratios work up and down the scale, you know, to their advantage to create the, mm -hmm. the musical intention that they want. Yeah. And in the harmonic series, each octave is self-contained, but in equal temperament, they all blend together. Right. And so, I mean, I, I, completely down on equal temperament. I understand its function and its purpose and why it was created um, and how it was created. 
and it's necessary for what we want to do musically today. But the other thing that equal temperament does that completely violates a basic economic rule of the harmonic series is, and this is, this is exactly what we see in our own debt-based monetary system is the harmonic series limits the number of notes that it produces by acknowledging the supply of notes that already exists. And that limiting note creation to supply is the same thing as having a gold standard. It's the same thing. And so the people who hate the gold standard and who want to inflate the currency, debase the currency, and develop this this debt-based system, they hate these limits. And so not only would they hate the gold standard, but they would hate, and I'm sure Plato did, hate the freedom. It's a freedom limit issue. And because the harmonic series is this free tuning system, it's, it, it'll, it gives the ear what it wants. There's no price that has to be paid to make a just octave with a just fifth. But there are these built-in limits and these self-regulating limits in the harmonic series that inflationists do not want. They don't want it in their monetary system. They don't want it in their music system. And that's why the concept of fiat banknotes and fiat music notes, which equal temperament notes are fiat, they're not based on a previous supply. They're based on the repetition of the same ratio over and over, which is picked by man. So it's a fiat choice. So uh, although I understand why we have it, I'm here to tell you that the reasons that it was developed are the same reasons that our monetary system was developed. It was based on the same ideas. That's interesting. And I, I, um, there is like, as you're talking, I'm, I'm feeling this like tension of, um, you know, the, 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 the freedom, um, limitation limited you know basis and it's almost like you're either going to limit the supply or you're going to limit the people and there are there are a lot of people that want to limit the people therefore they want a free supply and there are other people that want a free people so they limit the supply yeah well this is life you cannot have freedom without self-regulation But what the elites have tried to do is just always turn it over on its head, reverse it, invert it, and they want to guarantee your freedom and and determine your regulations rather than allowing for the natural self-regulation that will come about in complex systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a... That, and, and the in, unintended consequences of those things where we feel on a daily basis. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the other major character in your book, um, Francis Bacon, um, and, and what he's about and, and how he plays a role in this whole crazy, um, in this crazy world. So, so talk, talk to us a little bit about um, who Francis Bacon was and, and your, fascination and how he kind of 
got roped into this whole thing. Well, he he was born in 1561, so he is living in the late 1500s. Um, he's uh, living at the same time as Shakespeare. And so a lot of people, myself included, believe that he wrote the works of Shakespeare, either alone or with a, a group of people. Um, most people acknowledge that he was a genius. And then from there, it kind of uh, splinters off into different factions and what they believe Bacon was capable of and what they believe he did. But my interest in Bacon began when I was looking at Plato's tuning of Atlantis and his criticism of Atlantis. And then I just thought, well, I'd like to know how Francis Bacon might have tuned New Atlantis because he wrote about New Atlantis, which was actually America um, at that time. That's kind of how what his vision was, that this new world of America would be the new Atlantis, this place of freedom. So right there, that's tipping me off. Okay, he is not buying into Plato's criticism of Atlantis, he wants to, you know, build Atlantis back up from its ashes and allow that freedom to evolve and, and generate and, and spread. Right. So when I read New Atlantis, which I have to be honest with you, I've never read the whole thing through beginning to end. It's not done. He never finished it. And um, that's supposedly because he died, but a lot of people don't believe he really died. But <laughs> I'm not going to speak to that right now, um, but as I'm kind of picking apart the pieces of New Atlantis and uh, looking at them under a microscope just by themselves, he um, he doesn't tune it the way that Plato tuned Atlantis, but he does discuss numbers in a way that struck me are very harmonic. And so, um, now let me think. He is such a hard person to encapsulate. One of the first things that struck me from New Atlantis was that he says something in there that goes against all of the economic theory of his day, which was mercantilism back then. He states something in New Atlantis, and this is supposed to be, you know, a utopia. So um, I'm sure he felt free enough to make this criticism of mercantilism. Um, but he essentially refutes mercantilism in New Atlantis. And he says, well, for those who don't know, mercantilism is a complicated economic macroeconomic theory. But the piece that I want to look at is the fact that mercantilists, which tended to be European monarchies, are only interested in how much gold they can pull into the country and they do not care about merchandise. Get rid of the merchandise and sell it for gold and we get more gold. And at, um, Francis Bacon refutes this in New Atlantis by saying, if you have merchandise that you'd like to store while you're visiting, we'll, we'll store it for you like in a bank. And then when you come back to claim it, we'll either give you merchandise or gold and silver for to us, it is all as one. This is, I, as far as I know, the first expression of non-mercantilist economic theory that I'm aware of. 
And yes. it was groundbreaking. Breaking. Yes. Adam Smith would say the same thing in 1776, but that's 150 years later. John Locke would talk about it a little bit too, maybe 50 years later, but not so succinctly. Um, but this, again, the man was a genius and he was, ex he was expressing economic thought that was well ahead of its time. So j from there, it, it just, you know, kind of burst forward. And I mean, we could go down any path and talk about all sorts of different things. Well, let, let's, let's talk about, um, so how does music, you talked a little bit about fiat notes, and I think that's an important concept for people to understand. In fact, let's start here. We're, I'm going to start with the first question I told you I was going to ask you. You know, we're 30 minutes in. I love this. <laughs> this is how it's supposed to go. Um, your first chapter is entitled uh, "Human as, or Human Tuning Forks, and, and the first sentence is, human beings are oscillators. Um, explain what an oscillator is and how are human beings oscillators? Well... <clears throat> And I'm not a science person either, not math or science, but my understanding of oscillation just comes from the oscillating fan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that it goes over here and then it goes over here. And so one of the themes of the next octave is that music is based on two mathematical powers, the power of two and the power of three. And so all of all of the harmonic series and its structure can be explained by the powers of two and three. And so when you look at a human being, um, being an oscillator, we are very much operating within the power of two realm, which Marco Rodin, who is this guy I had never heard of before, and then I did. <laughs> and he developed something called the Mobius circuit, which... Some people may know about, others not. And I can explain it, but it will take a while. So you might want to just Google it um, or your search engine of choice. Right. <laughs> but um, he saw the power of two as being matter-based and the power of three as being spirit-based. And so as humans, we are um, both, you know, we have a spirit and we have a body and they kind of have to go together in the same way that we have the same dilemma in music. How do you get your octave body and your spirit perfect fifth to work together? And um, so, uh, well, I guess that answers your question as far as, I hope, uh, as far as how human beings are oscillators. Well, so let me let me make sure I understand. So that that tension between the, you know, the the spirit and the body, um, I mean, are are you saying that that there is a literal vibration, or is there, are you saying that that somehow that that oscillator or just that idea of of you know, you know, like squaring the circle, you know, you have to like almost have to like think of think of it bigger in order to make it work. Is that kind of what you're saying? Is, is that, am I in the right realm there? Well, that's not really where I was going with it. I, I was definitely talking about the fact that we do have frequencies. A okay. lot of people will say that you have a frequency. I don't really believe that. Um, I believe we have many. Okay. So you're talking about like physical reality as opposed to, um, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a thought process. Yeah. And so that is something that you kind of have to look at separately from your spirit and your soul and all of that. 
we're not down here in the matter-based realm just to pursue spiritual things. That is something I think we should do. But we're also supposed to master physicality and, and duality and the power of two. And where you can start with that is frequency. I mean, everything comes back to frequency. But the the whole purpose of the the title of my book, The Next Octave, is that if you look at Pythagorean tuning, um, even though it was an imperfect, it was really all spirit based, and that's why it was imperfect for our for our needs here because we're both. But what Pythagorean tuning will do if if you um, stack perfect fifths on top of each other 12 times, uh, you may not get a perfectly just octave, but that's okay because that's a duality thing. That's a matter-based thing. And that's not what Pythagorean tuning is doing. It's taking you into the next octave sharp. Right. And so as you get up to your octave C, that octave C is just a little bit further away. So you've actually ascended farther than you can in matter-based reality. In matter-based reality, you can only double your octave and you're not really ascending. You're just going up. <laughs> yeah. But if you want to ascend your, your personal frequency, you want to do something spirit-based. You want to start, a, you want to start stacking ratios that are based on the power of three, then you're going to end up with a sharp octave and you will have ascended a little bit in your frequency. And then, and then you can create that uh, spiral over and over again, theoretically, <laughs> right? Or in reality, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm down with, I'm down with the program. <laughs> that's, that's kind of fun. Um, that, uh, okay. Let's talk about. Okay, so, um, and and you you talk about this about um, bacon, um, the idea of of, and I, and this is this is something that can be I, what I love about this idea is that it can be proven. It has been proven. Like you, you can do experiments in your home that do this. And the idea of sympathy, the idea that um, things that vibrate a, at a certain frequency will create, um, you know, sim sympathetic vibrations with with other things. That and and I think one of my favorite experiments was a, um, uh, with this was was. Uh, the the uh, oh man gosh what um, using metronomes you know so I you can see you can see this on YouTube you know take a thousand metronomes set them at different times set them you know at, or, or set them at the same tempo but set them off at different times and eventually over time they end up yeah being all together being you know being sympathetic with one another um, right. it's a fascinating kind of kind of thing to watch but you can see that in all sorts of aspects of life um, yeah. So inanimate objects can become resonant. Um, when people become resonant, though, I think there's a little bit even more at, at play. Okay. Because the human brain has something called a frequency-following response. And so it's a lot easier for us to become resonant with the frequencies around us because the brain is trying to do that. It's seeking that out. Whereas I think with inanimate objects, it just happens because you know, eventually they, they just get into the rhythm that mm -hmm. is in their environment. But the human brain seems to be seeking it out, which I think is cool. That is cool. That's really cool. Um, 
the 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 subtitle of your book about creating a a um oh i just had a brain freeze again um sustainable sustainable economy okay so talk about how um you know i think this is another tension that you feel that one feels um is the idea of having a um you know only there's only the 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 growing pie versus the, the, you know, getting a slice of somebody else's pie theory of economics. You know, if you, if, if, if one person has, um, you know, is rich, it's at the expense of somebody else. That's a very common, especially in Keynesian thought and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but talk about like, how is this, these ideas, how does music help us understand economics as a sustainable um, or create a sustainable economy? Well, the first way is that in the harmonic series, like I said, they limit the supply of new notes based on the supply that they already have. And so they limit the generation of new notes, I should say, based on the supply that they already have behind that note. And if we did that, oh my goodness, that would change our economy massively. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one way. But how is that? How is that sustainable? That I think that's what I want to get at. Is like explain to people why that why that is sustainable. Where having um, you know m- unlimited money flowing through the 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 circuit of the economy is not sustainable. Well, <clears throat> inflating the money supply is when without going too deep into this. Debt monetization will, it requires a certain uh, environment. Mm -hmm. And the Keynesian uh, suggestion, I don't know if he actually used this term, but the term that we apply to it is the infinite growth paradigm. It always must grow. That's not sustainable. The infinite growth, that's that's not good. And yeah. That is the same problem that we experience in the harmonic series or we see in the harmonic series is that the power of two doubling out the octaves into infinity is infinite growth. So what happens is the spirit power of three of the perfect fifth, and there are some other intervals based on the power of three also, and some other frequencies based on the power of three. They come in and they temper the system, but they do it naturally. They don't do it through the government. They do it through, through math. And so the power of three in the harmonic series puts a check on, a natural check on the inflationary power of two. You might think, oh, well, the power of three, that's just tripling. That's, that's inflating even more. But that's not what happens. In the harmonic series, the power of three acts as a divisor. It divides each octave in half. And then so on and so on. It divides each interval actually in half in what the Greeks call the meson or mes. I'm, I'm mispronouncing that. The, the Greek pronunciation is much more European sounding. Yeah. But I call it the mes, and it just means the middle. And it's, it's the power of three coming in and checking that infinite growth paradigm, cutting it in half. And okay, now we can go on from there. So right. it's just this this repeating check on growth. And if we did that, if we allowed a natural repeating check on growth to regulate and temper our monetary system, 
we wouldn't be in the situation that we are today. Right. Right. And, and nobody, nobody would have to figure it out. Nobody right. would have to sit in an office and crunch numbers and try to figure out how to keep everything healthy. It just does it. Right. It That's, keeps there's so many paradoxes like that. Like, for example, you know, the idea that, um, you know, when, uh, what, uh, Robert Murphy taught me that, um, you know, through his, not, not personally, but through his <laughs> YouTube channel, um, yeah. you know, that, that a, um, that a depression or, or a time of economic turmoil is actually a time when the economy can get healthy. Like that, that's exactly what it's supposed to do. So it's, it's saying you're sick. We need to settle down and get healthy. And what you're talking about is a way to kind of stay healthy. You know, it's, it's, you know, eat right, do your exercise. Stay off the sugar to begin with, because that's all our monetary system is, is a bunch of cake eating. Yeah. And yeah. let's stop doing that and let's start producing some things of value that will help other people in our community. If we do that and stop eating the cake and drinking the sugary Kool-Aid, our economies, and you know, there's economies everywhere. There's economies in your town, in your county, in your, there's all sorts of different sizes and scales and let them function naturally. And you will be amazed at how productive each region becomes. And the only reason that we're not doing that now is because all of the incentives coming out of Washington are for the opposite. Right. We are penalized when we save. We are taxed many times over for the same activity. And so human action is, is penalized. Yeah. Essentially. And, and, and I think, and I kind of want to like, um, Man, we need to have you on again, Stephanie, uh, if you don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind. I, I think, um, you know, because what you're talking about, I think I think many people could say, well, hey, well, our economy, you know, it seems to be doing well. Like we're the we're the greatest co- economy on earth. Look at all the stuff we have. Look at all the wealth we have accumulated over time there. You know, you you um, you know, you, you gold standard people or, or you people that that say that, that the Fed is, is wrong, you know, are, are, are not looking at what's happening out in the world. And to which I would say, well, let's, let's compare, you know, you know, how many incomes does it take to, you know, buy a house, for example, you know, you, you can't compare like what we have because of all of the um, innovation and, and, you know, things that, that, that we've created, you can't compare that to, you know, how much work does it take to supply people with their basic needs? Um, and and so when we talk about what is sustainable versus what is unsustainable, you know, I think we get a, a distorted view of of that reality. Well, and I think people don't understand that what's happening with the dollar, for example, in the world in general is a very different thing than what's happening with the dollar here at home. It's the same dollar, but here at home it loses value every day. Out in the world it gains value all the time. Why is that? Well, because here at home, in in this smaller scale of an economy, we're looking at the inflation of the dollar within our borders, and it loses value every time there are, it's another marginal reality. For each additional dollar that comes into the economy through debt, the value of each dollar lessens. And so that's clearly marginal, but out in the world, 
the dollar is the reserve currency. And so other countries are forced to use it. And any little hiccup that happens in their country is going to cause the dollar to rise even more in comparison to their currency. And so it's such a rigged system. It doesn't, it shouldn't give anyone warm, fuzzy feelings that we're no. doing great. Right. Because, <laughs> because that system appears to be changing by, by the day as, as countries are saying, huh, maybe we ought to think about gold, huh? Maybe we ought to think about maybe, you know, creating our own system, you know, which is going to just, you know, it, it's funny. It, it would be, I think people will, will, will be shocked if the dollar, ceases to become the reserve currency, what will happen to us, you know? Um, And and that's kind of the sad reality. Stephanie, we're, we're we're kind of out of time. I really want to have you back. We've barely touched like this book is, there's a lot of, there's a lot of depth to it. And, and, and I really encourage people to go out and and buy it, read it. Um, But I'd love to have you back Um, again, one more time. How do people find you? How do people buy your book? Well, I have a YouTube channel also, Stephanie McPeak Peterson. And then um, my book, which I'll show you again, is on Amazon. Uh, Just search my name or the title of the book. And then I have a website too, stephaniepeterson.net. No McPeak in that one. But um, not a whole lot going on over there, just FYI. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, So would you prefer people to check out your YouTube channel? Um, is that the best place to get most current info? I usually have a link to my book under most of my videos. And one thing about the reason I bring up the YouTube channel is that I have been told that the next octave can be a little tough going. And so what I, what I'm trying to do with a lot of my videos, not all of them, but a lot of them is to try to explain some of the harder aspects of the book. Because I think when you talk about it, it's a little bit easier to get than when you're trying to slog through reading it on a page and eventually your eyes gloss over. So I do think it's important to have the the information in book form. Um, even I can get confused about it and then I can go back and check and make sure I'm you know saying this right. But um, if it is at all confusing, that's what I'm hoping that my videos will help alleviate. Fantastic. Well, we'll definitely put links in the show description and in our video here. Um, But thank you again for coming on. Look forward to doing it again, Stephanie. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Mike is gone. You are listening to And If Love Remains. Gone, but not forgotten. First of 23 installments requested by Dr. Levitt. Trying to be in compliance here because we're taking him and that whole organization.